listener. Uh, welcome back to Flail Forward, the podcast about tabletop RPG design and amateurism. Um, I am your host for this episode, Karas Noor or Car. Uh, this is the second part of our discussion of ludology and narratology. Um, in part one, we defined those terms and talked a little bit about how different elements of tabletop qualify as each. So now I think I'm going to throw the discussion open, fully open, to cover anything else anybody wants to rant about. In case you <laughs> didn't think what we did last time was rant. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't. We were very simple. <laughs> so I guess I'll open with my official stance on how ludology and narratology should come together, although we were pretty much on the same page before. I think what's very important and something that you should focus on in the general thing of this is that uh, you're basically your ludo, the ludos of your game should be totally consistent with the narratives you want to produce by your game. And they should obviously we talked a lot about how they should fit together and how they fit together by default. But you have but I feel like what differentiates a good game from a less put together game is actually thinking about what that means. And I guess the pretty much my main thing on this topic. So I want to say it, but I'm done now. Yeah, well, definitely. From when we consider game design, that's the well, maybe yeah, no, it's the thing to do. Like the it's the best you can do for the idea that you have so you may not have the best idea but to make the best game out of that idea you you need to do that Mm -hmm. i don't think you'll find any disagreement from any of us on that point i think you you you, i i I think at this point it's kind of a given i disagree Um, i don't know what i disagree about but i'm disagreeing (laughs) well i I do think can't even think of something to nitpick (laughs) i think it's very on the uh, uh, hits the nail on the head, but it's still surprising how often those targets veer off in the industry as a whole. And I'm not saying this from like, oh, I do this so well, but I guess I guess it's more likely that it's not necessarily as easy as you might think. Yes, it's not an easy thing to do. Although I will say, cut to the chase does this, does what I was talking about quite well. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I, I... I think a lot of inexperienced game designers and even some really experienced ones kind of lose the importance of the ludology and narratology as they're like entrenched in like constructing the simulation because that's what like off the top of your head that's the the majority of what you consider as the realm of tabletop design. Mm-hmm. So it's like designing the character structure and their the character's fictional interactions. Like that, that all contribute to what the simulation is and can handle. But you forget and it's predominantly 
uh, and I think this is limiting to the hobby as a whole, that it, it that these products are predominantly thought of as games and not, um, what was the term we had before? The creative story, story. creation engines. Yeah. Yeah. Story creation engines. Is that, I think a lot of designers leave that to be assumed that some story will be created during play, but they don't embrace the play itself as producing a story. It's just a game experience. Yeah. Well, better they just don't care. Like well, they're not be trying to make a story. Yeah. I think it would be interesting if if people had examples of times where the ludology um or the ludics parts of the game were sort of overboard or out of way out of balance with the the narrative or vice versa where you know the narrative was just sort of that's, I guess where the focus much. was on one or the other, because sometimes you have large focus on narrative and then the, the a game that doesn't fit it, or sometimes you have a large focus on game and the narrative is just sort of thrown together. I I think that's like D and D is the poster child for not caring about the narrative, but then on the other hand, there's the the freeform role-playing and the so-called storytelling games that don't care about the gameplay because they're only their perspective is entirely on the narrative. It's like D and D does not care about narrative at all. Yeah. I guess it kind of, it wasn't quite what I was getting at more like how, um, and I only know this from other people telling me, so, uh, I'm, I'm just going based on the, what people have said, but um, where the lore of vampires, especially in the original editions, was all about sort of, uh, you know, monster politics or vampire politics, um, where the gameplay was fighting. Uh, and yeah. it those didn't jive. And that, that's what I mean. Like, I guess, do you have other examples of like big mismatches? Because I because I, I don't think D and D is a mismatch necessarily. Yeah. No, I could push back on that. D and D doesn't care about narrative. I think it D doesn't care about. Um, it it diminishes that it 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 expects the narrative to be generated by the play and doesn't do much to prompt it. I, I wouldn't say it doesn't care. Yeah, it just assumes it'll be present. Yeah. yeah. It assumes it will be yeah. emergent. It'll it'll yeah. emerge, but it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't do a lot of prompting. Where the games where like Powered by the Apocalypse like does a lot of prompting for narrative. Uh, uh, um, Blaze in the Dark does a lot of prompting for narrative. Like uh, each of our games does prompting for narrative. Um, whereas whereas you like D and D and generally like OSR doesn't. They don't OSR kind of you know issues that as a matter of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Right, because if you look at the GM directive section of D&D or pretty much any OSR game, they're all about the mechanical necessity of encounter setup. Like, they don't address any literary theory at all. Yeah, right. 
in fact, it would be weird to actually see that kind of thing in, in a dungeon master's guide, like at this point in, in D and D cycle, it, it would right, be because it's not out of character because it's, yeah, it's not on brand for those products, but for something that does consider narrative structure and literary theory important to the gameplay, something like maybe Any like game... Bluebeard's. Yeah, that's a good like one. Bluebeard's, Bluebeard's Bride, Bride or, yeah. or or even maybe the Apocalypse games. Mm-hmm. Like they tried those Apocalypse games and and Fate and that whole movement tries to make a game out of the narrative. Yeah, I mean they in, even going so first. Yeah, well being going so far as to outline the three act structure as mm-hmm. a tool that the GM should use to run the game. You know, um like explicitly outlining it and that's <clears throat> I don't see an issue with that. I mean, I, I mean, neither. I think that's myself. a good thing. Yeah. I don't Although think I it's think... the only structure, but it's a good one for a novice GM to start out with. Like, this is something we've been using for thousands of years. It works. Yeah. But <laughs> it ends up being the case anyway, a lot of times, because the players are subconsciously aware that what they're doing is producing a story. So they naturally use those concepts to frame it to frame the gameplay even without realizing it and the i think the fault of the gamest games is that they don't make that important framing you mean it's like as crunchy as my game is you all know that my plan for the GM direction is going to be like a crash course in storytelling 101. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what was it going to say? I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And I think, and I think that's kind of the direction Rob is taking in his GM section to, to some degree. Right. Yeah. A little bit. I mean, mine's, mine's weird because mine's, Mine's structured to um, like the start of the game unfolds like a choose your own adventure that sets up the world for the players and 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 narrates them into their where where the game starts rather than because one of the things that I've always found difficult personally and then also I've I've seen just about every other game I've played and struggled with this a little bit is the transition from the not playing to playing for the first time like what what is the setup what is the what's the situation right now what are the initial bootstrap the initial bootstrap of like going from that transition from session zero into session one you know wherever that happens like you know for us in in my gaming group like we'd often do character like schedule an extra long day for character creation do that and start the first session like during at the same time and there was always a little bit of awkwardness to it. Um, and so that's, that's, it's, uh, 
I wanted to do something that would kind of hand that to the players and the GM just to overcome that little bit of um, trepidation and uncertainty and just sort of, and then also lead the players into the story with the knowledge they should have, like being delivered on a silver platter. Like, so I don't have to do a lot of, it's not necessary for the players to have read the book to start playing the game. You know, they don't have to know about all the backstory and the lore like that. Some of it's being delivered up front and that's the stuff I expect them to have. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to solve a number of problems I see with the, the extended campaign model um, in, 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 by taking away a little bit of narrative freedom at the start. Um, I think it's appropriate only in that I have a very specified setting. Um, and so I, I, I can get away with it, but I think a lot of games are going to have a lot of problems. Um, if you know, trying to do that with, by, and you, you couldn't do it in D and D for example, because it's a generics game and the setting is going to be way different from each game of D and D like you know, people's homebrew campaigns are a lot of what gets run in Dungeons and Dragons. And then the other settings have multiple entry points. And so they don't have the advantage of, of, of being able to do that. Uh, so but does I'm, setting I'm, really matter for that? Like no uh, matter what the setting is, if, it should be, if it you're trying to use as a lever to get the play moving. Yeah. But I'm just, I'm just, kickstarting it in a way and i'm kickstarting it with knowledge i want the players to have so like in order to do that with you know in a generic game you'd have to outline like a block of stuff for each potential starting area which is what i'm doing i just have the advantage of i can make those things uh put i can play with the levers on those things and sort of dial them into different experiences right but i'm saying each setting should be its own little control board that can act as the bootstrap in whatever way the group or the gm wants to pursue right. like it your particular setting does not is not more or less conducive to that than any other like it's a, this is about be like using the setting rather than what the setting is yeah, it's about using the setting, but it's it's I'm I'm saying the distinction is mainly between like a bound game and a generic one. Here, like I, others, well, like, even if, like Apocalypse even, World could do the same thing. For example, you could bootstrap. I mean, although Apocalypse World is a little more generic, apocalypse post-apocalypse, but you could still do it in D and D. You just have to know enough about the setting to do it. Yes, yes, you could. You, but you'd have to, but they don't give that to you. I, me as the designer, that's what I want to give to the players. You know, I want to give them that kickstart. I want to give them like that, that initial injection of your characters know this and this is the situation without, without, without ham, like without having relying on the GM to deliver what I, what I know they're going to want at that moment. Like, uh, like I'm sort of, the way I'm structuring it is I'm taking away a little bit of freedom, narrative freedom from the GM or the guide in my game and, and 
but only for like the first, you know, 10 minutes of play, 10, 15 minutes of play. And then, okay. and then it opens up. Right. And then, then it's like, okay, now what do you do? Here's the situation. Here's the opening and situation. That's one of the things is the more, you know, about something, the less control you have over it. But like in terms of, you know, having player options and such, it's just kind of a thing, like an, an open world game. You don't know what your order players are going to do things in. And as you play, like, uh, most tabletop role-playing games basically are open world in that sense. So because you don't know what order they're going to do stuff in, you can't really know what's actually going to happen at any given time. The more limited their choices are, the more you know of what's going on, the more you can base stuff around that. So it's just kind of how that works. It, it's always going to be a trade-off. Right, and in something as freeform as tabletop, the, the, in, the, the entry point is not necessarily known until somebody starts thinking about that. The path that the play takes is certainly not known the particular things that get interacted with is not known and the endpoint is not known but theoretically one the entry point would and the path that follows to the endpoint would make some narrative sense one would hope i mean it has to make it, it. It will make some kind of sense. Whether the sense makes sense is a different story. <laughs> yeah, but it's well, it's definitely something that as you have more control over what's going on, the more you can actually start using that to your advantage as well. And right, because if, it's easier to anticipate each of a limited set of options. Right. So if you limit those options, you, or even limit it all the way down to one, where you say, this is going to happen, like, for example, you are starting off in a, a post-apocalyptic world, or a tavern, or whatever. Like, you know this is going to happen. You can plan around that. You can do stuff with it. Like, I'm actually kind of surprised that more games don't, in the GM section, just say, Okay, start everybody off in a tavern. You know they're in the tavern. Here's a few different things that you could do to start them off in a tavern. Like, instead of just, like, people know that you start off in a tavern in a lot of games. It's just kind of a common trope at this point, but they don't really plan around that assumption, which is kind of weird. Yeah, that's... I And I respect Rob for kind of providing that that initial push into the narrative because a lot of games don't offer anything like that. Mm -hmm. And like once you read all of D and D or shadow run or fate, like you're left with all this information and no indication of what to do with it. Yeah, generally that's that's unless somebody's shown you or I mean now it's less of an issue, right? Because you can 
you you can watch games on YouTube, but when I was learning how to play, like that wasn't a thing. Like that was, you know, somebody just sort of jumped you in, and then that was how it got done. After that, it wasn't like we thought there were a right. lot of options. You know, it was just sort of here's here's the starting point I had. Okay, you guys are in a tavern, and that's how it's. <laughs> you know, for for many of us, that's how it got started. Now it's it. There, there's many. There's a lot. Well, there's better examples for one, and then there's games that don't do that explicitly. You know, there's games that you start. Yeah, like Bluebeard's Bride is a great example of that, where you start off, and the situation is all of the players are playing different elements of the psyche of one person in this crazy house, and you're married to a murderous pirate, and that's the that's that's the situation starting out. It's like, oh wow, that's you know very narratively pregnant. Yeah, it it's in and and I think uh I sort of talked about it in the last episode as uh a bad thing or like a lower I don't know. I guess it's more of like a personal thing, but just a I, I don't really like modules, but they do create um a, a pre-existing situation that the players can jump into. Uh, including the GM and whether that's better or easier is probably debatable, but from the outside, it looks easier. Uh, it it looks like something is preformed. Um, and I can see a need for that uh, as a game designer so much so that I hired a bunch of writers to write a bunch of scenarios for my, for my game. Um, oh, cool, and yeah. I feel like that's really important for mm-hmm. a few reasons. One is to see what it can do and also just to give that option to people who either have no desire or uh, a perception of no ability to do it themselves. I th- I think this, caver- this chasm that we're talking about between that lies between lore and gameplay is the initial premise the the narrative kernel from that grows through gameplay and i think the thing that rob is trying to do is provide some means across that chasm which is to like guide the players into having a premise because if you look at a vast a vast amount of lore the thing you don't need you don't need know to do with it that is necessary is finding a premise within it a lot of games hand that to you it, you know uh so well not a lot but uh, there are, there are enough examples of that where it's like okay this is the premise like in 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 dark heresy for example the premise is you are all inquisitorial agents you work for an inquisitor and he tells you what to do, and that's a that's a fine premise. That's like okay, we we you know we have a source of things to go accomplish in the world, and that's mm-hmm. that's a that's a fine but, way of doing it, you know. But contrast what D and D does, or Shadowrun, or right to a greater extent GURPS, with regard to offering a premise, versus what Blades in the Dark does, which is. Okay, the general premise is that you're some kind of 
criminal enterprise, and then it very quickly adds adds another level of detail onto that. Right? One yeah, of the it drills down right there away. is you can start with something simple and build upon it without any issues. If you start a little too complicated, it it causes some issues. In a particular game or just in general? Just in general, like yeah. you'll overwhelm people if you dump yeah, too much. Exactly. Like yeah, that's that's yeah, I completely But you can agree. build upon it easily. Like you yeah. can go in stages. Like you can be like every session new stuff gets added on top of what you had already been done. Even mid-session, you can do that every right. time. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. People I mean, that up with it easily. It's just, if you dump on, here's 20 things you have to do, they're just going to stare at you and be like, I'm not doing that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why, you know, I, that's why I'm doing it in the way I'm doing it, so I can carefully control that amount so they're not drinking from the fire hose on the first session because uh-huh. nothing can... It's very easy to turn people off a game by by plunking down like the 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 history of the Imperium of Man up to this point, and like here you go, this is the history you learn about the Space Marines and the and like. For I'm just going back to the Dark Heresy example because like that that's a game with a deep and expansive extant amount of lore that's not even in the book, and you can know way more about that universe than is in the book but you really don't want to deliver all that to players like when i started running dark heresy i a number of my players had no experience with 40k at all and i didn't give it to them on purpose um as i you know i told them about the world they were from and it's a sci-fi game and these are the big pieces of that but other than that you're just you know it's fine for you to play ignorant imperial citizens because that's what you are you know, and I don't have to fill in uh, the thing. And Dark Heresy was designed explicitly like that, I think. So you wouldn't have to yeah, do a ton of... That's not a bad yeah. thing where you can design in that, okay, you don't know a lot about this. That's okay. It is okay if your character doesn't know what's going on. Like, mm-hmm. if you actually build that into the premise of the setting and such, it actually makes it a lot easier to start adding things later on pretty yeah. easily. Yeah, and and I, I took that a step further in ashes recently by um explaining that memory loss is one of the one of the side effects of the day of wrath and so you can just not know things about the world that you very well could have known but is now blind spot even things about yourself so you can discover parts of your character and you know things you knew later as the game evolves and as your connection to the character evolves which is something like i think a lot of us have done in RPGs, like mm. you build in backstory as you go. Um, yep. And I, I just wanted to create a uh, more fictionally plausible mechanism for that. Yeah, I actually find that, sense. that in a lot of ways, we actually have a lot of overlap there. Like, for example, characters in my game, they don't actually even necessarily know who they are as a person. Like, that's um, something that you assume people just know, and most people take it for granted, but. In practice, it's a lot more rare than you would think. Yeah. But in addition to that, you also have the whole concept of, like, you know, in you start off as simple, where 
you're just trying to figure out who you are as a person, who these people that you've been stuck with are, things like that. And things devolve from there. Like, you don't have to worry about dealing with the responsibilities to other factions or this kind of, um, this war that's going to be brewing in the background until you're actually in a stable enough position in terms of the basics that you can actually handle these things. But you can have lots of little things keep uh, crewing over time as well. So, I mean, this is just kind of a good way to manage what players have to deal with at any given moment. Just slowly introduce stuff, make it a little bit more complex over time. You can make it a lot more complex over time, as long as you do it gradually. Because I think, I think the tendency for a lot of designers, well, I think there's two schools of thought. Like some designers, which this one I think I fall squarely into, is to front load the character identity by default, but then allow, to, allow it to be like metered out over time. And then the other school of thought is like to start the gameplay with a blank slate of a character and have it take shape entirely through the gameplay. Mm -hmm. Which is what somebody else is doing right here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no idea how that would be. <laughs> nope. <laughs> what? Part of the reason why I actually want to try Mark's game is I have a tendency to, whenever I get the chance to be a player, because it happens so rarely, to write out extensive backstories that I never <laughs> use. <laughs> but I like technically You're give the GM as much as they want, but I like I have a <clears throat> I write out a fair amount of backstory for a character because uh, you know I basically write out as much backstory as I will do for an entire campaign, like mm -hmm. start. For a single character instead of for like head or whatever. Well, you're explicitly disallowed from doing that in Mark's game. Yes, yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Kind of want to play um, a game that forces me not to yeah. do that. Yeah. It's it's interesting and somewhat crippling at the same time because I think that like I I as a GM love to play with character backstory. Um so it's it's a lot of fun to design a game where I'm I'm not playing with that, where that needs to come from the mechanics of the game. I need to design a way to have elements from the story influence the characters and shape them. Because if I'm not doing it, and I'm explicitly telling the players not to start the game with it, then the game needs to provide that for a compelling narrative. Well, it has to come from somewhere. Exactly. Otherwise, games. it's not a not as much of a story or not as much of a role play experience as I think I can make it. So yeah. Okay, so uh anything else anybody wants to throw in? Well, I think one of the things that we've been focusing on just in general for pretty much this entire discussion, and as well for like our games as a whole, is that pretty much all of us are actually focused pretty heavily on the concept of, you know, adding narrative elements to role-playing games. Like, 
we have some things that are like, you know, the mechanics and such as well that we're often doing in interesting ways. But for the most part, it's usually the narrative element that's usually the biggest part. What I'm finding is kind of odd, though, is we don't technically need it is the weird thing. Because, like, people make almost anything out of the game. Like, I was playtesting a friend's uh, game last night, and um, to put it bluntly, there is nothing in the game itself about the narrative at all, period. And the game's mechanics are... I won't... I would be charitable if I said they were unfinished. Like... <laughs> okay. Basically, it's things like, okay, I want to attack this guy. Oh, I should probably figure out how to do that. Like... Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so... so... If, it, if, if it was barely functional, how were you testing it? The... The funny part is, it was, it was still actually enjoyable. We were still able to get it to run, even though it was like, there wasn't even a generic like, oh, we, if you want to know what happens, um, roll like 1d20 and add like a modifier to it or anything. We didn't even have that for a generic catch all of what happened. It was like, it basically came down to, oh, I should probably make one of those too. Um, just roll one d twenty. I'll I'll figure out what it means after I see the number. <laughs> so this wasn't so, really all that finished, designed? so we say. But yeah, that's how we play yeah. when we're ten years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, the, well, the funny not part, necessarily. I have a point behind this though. So the point behind this is that despite that there is like no Ludos here, there is no narrative here. And it's like everything is basically handled by the GM making stuff up on the spot pretty much. And yeah, the game was still enjoyable. It wasn't really any different from uh, a lot of games. It was just less structured like if if i was going to play like a so random calvin ball yeah it, well it wasn't quite as unstructured <laughs> as that but it was close in parts but the thing was like even in this kind of a ridiculously extreme situation it didn't play a whole lot different than a game of D where people hadn't really put much uh into anything other than the GM having their own uh, plot. Like, you don't need the game to be really strong in either of these areas. Like, you don't need strong mechanics. You don't need strong narrative elements from the game. People can still find a way to have fun. But the game, if you're going to be making a game, the point of making a game as a game, is to basically feed people ideas to start with and to structure things for them so that they don't have to do this work themselves. If the GM has to come up with everything by themselves in the heat of the moment, then what's the point of playing your game? 
like why are we even using mechanics at all why are we yeah. having like anything at this point so yeah that's my main criticism of so-called rules light games which are designed not necessarily to be light but to be abridged like they're, they're, a lot of these games are just like minimal explorations of what any kind of game design could be for the sake of being minimal, you know? And, but, okay, I want to say something about the roll a die and decide thing. Like, even when I GM now, like, I know something's going to happen, and I've got multiple directions it can go, and I can't decide on which one would be better or more interesting. I'll still roll a die to to help me decide. Oh yeah, that that can totally work. One of the most common. So it's not a juvenile technique. It's no, it's, it's not. just something to get you out of. It's just something to get you to make, to arrive at a choice. Yeah, I was just saying that it was something that it hadn't been planned out particularly well as all. Well. It's like this is not necessarily a terrible thing. It's not the end of the world or anything. It it obviously worked to some degree. It's just even in like an example of something that was so obviously in very very early alpha stages of development it was still possible to play it as a game like that's gonna happen pretty much no matter what yeah so there Carl. was hmm? sorry it was i it wasn't cat kind of got defensive it wasn't cat who said that i i did but my point wasn't that rolling a die is juvenile to determine the outcome what i meant is when we don't know that that's how in the way she described it was we are roll a die and i'll figure out something after you roll like i'll figure out the implications of it after so even when you're gming and you say can't get a roll die for this in your head you're like you know one to three is this and a four to six is that you know before the roll as opposed to when we're kids we're like oh, roll, and I'll make something up after the fact, where you have no idea what that roll means beforehand. Right. Or you didn't read the book and you're just winging it. it that's what I mean. Like, yeah. it's, That's what I meant, yeah. where we, as children, we do that because we don't mm -hmm. know, the, you know the, the nature of the game. Well, we exactly. tend to plan things out more around the possibilities. But that's, that's something that's usually trained. Like, some people do live very much so on the thrill of the moment to see what happens. And it's like, they don't have an idea until they see the die roll and they see a 16. And it's like, okay, it's good. It's not amazing. It's not like a 19 or a 20, but it's good. So I, I only have to come up with the one possibility, which is what's fairly good but not amazing as opposed to what does what does good look like what does really good look like what does extremely good look like and like 
a whole list of things. So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but as you said, it's like something that's, it's much less refined, but it's much more, oh, what's the term I want to use? I want to say fill in the blanks, but that's not what I want to use for the term. There's a word for it and I forget. Ad hoc? Anyway, the the opposite yeah, side probably. of it. The opposite side of it is actually can also be done with a die roll, which is kind of amusing, I find. Which is the concept of when you want to make a like yes or no decision, flip a coin, and while it's in the air, whichever one you hope it lands on, that's the one you pick. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty much the opposite of it. Yeah, I think when Rob interjected ad hoc there, I think that's the opposite you were looking for. Oh, that's the opposite. Okay. Hmm. So, like, it's the choice, be- it's the difference between choo- like generating a result among known options versus letting the result steer you towards an option. Hmm. <laughs> Because really, yeah. rolling a 16 means very different things with whether you're rolling a d20 or like a d10. Yeah, yeah, 10 d- yeah, yeah, sure. Jeez, if you get a 16 on 10 d10, <laughs> yeah, you, you fucked up. Wow, you're screwed. Like that's a minimum of at least four well, or five ones in a row. A lot of those. The one hundred games are roll under, aren't they? Hmm. A lot of them are, uh, but yeah, it means different things. Like you could you like uh, roll master is roll high for. And I think the biggest issue yeah. is most of them are set up as a percentage, and they just don't adjust for it. It's well, fine. a lot of it them works. are set up as a percentage and don't allow it to be adjusted. like the the whole d100 thing seems to be a specific camp of game design that's that's staked around staked out around the, the dice use and i've seen people rant about how roll high is better because what because what the dice say is more important to the result than the target number which I don't buy because the dice, the dice roll is only, is only present for a moment. And like, I think it's easier for a player to conceive that they have X percent chance of success rather than, which is what roll under would be rather than their character sheet saying that they're like, the X percentile of capability, which is what roll high implies. Like, I I just think that it's natural for people to think high numbers are better, and it's the numbers on the sheet that persist longer. So those are the ones I made high. Yeah. So, anything else we want to cover before we end this? 
Oh, there's still another thing to do before we end this. Oh. Amelia, don't do it. You can turn back now. <laughs> okay. Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> okay, what's your thing? Let's do it. Um, okay, the last thing I had planned was uh, what were our takeaways or insights or changes of opinions from the materials that were put on the table, as it were? Uh, I'll like, start with that. Or go ahead, Kevor. Okay. I feel like we should also include maybe like if this discussion changed our opinions at all. Although, <laughs> uh, sure. I have to, I'll, I have to I'll say, answer that question too. I have to say, like, I went into the discussion of fluidology and aerotology with pretty much the same ideas I've come out of this discussion with. <laughs> hmm. I did appreciate that bit where we were. To, where we were talking about the struct, the innate structure of how sto- of how ludology and narratology relate, and the specifics of role playing games was a way I hadn't thought of phrasing it before. But it's no new information. But so we'll let other people talk because they might actually have something to say. Rob, uh, yeah. So reading the papers to the extent that I did, um, they none of them shifted my opinion and and more than that i think none of them really made me rethink an aspect of ashes that i hadn't already sort of broken apart and 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 fixed already um i didn't get too much out of them in terms of practical application although i thought uh jenkins was the best of the three, or at least most closely represented what, how I feel about the interaction. And I thought, uh, the jewel guy was just, didn't, I, I, I couldn't see where he was getting his arguments from or how he was arriving at the conclusions he arrived at with his premises. It's really shit. Okay. Um, I guess I'll go then like without, making direct criticisms of the papers i'm i didn't gain like i didn't get gain any change of position in reading all this i i appreciated the formal discussion and new concepts that i was aware of being like put into focus and giving and given like exposing me to the actual terms mm-hmm. but like the all the concepts and principle and theory that i had arrived at on my own was either confirmed in these works or the works were blatantly seen could be easily dismissed as flawed. So Jenkins was good. Arseth is very good. Um, and Murray was pretty good. I've liked Arseth 2012 a lot better than Arseth 2004, but that's me. 
I didn't read the 2012 so, one. But yeah, the I've got another topic on our agenda that I had put on and I refined it because it's basically the embodiment of a term that I learned from these works. Oh yeah, what's that? So Um, who do I want to put the spotlight on? Um, uh, I'll take Mark? it. Oh. Yeah. Or whoever. <laughs> I thought you were just going to answer his question was all. Sorry, my, my comment, uh, I think that sort of, um, exploring ludology and erotology is something that, RPG designers do on a regular basis, and it's critical to understanding. Well, is is critical to creating um, acceptable tabletop role playing games, and I think that those terms in the wider design uh, RPG design field are often just referred to as game and narrative. Um, or mechanics and narrative. Um, and so I think, I, yeah, I think that these understanding the interaction is crucial. Um, but as far as the, I guess I was, I, I guess I had a fair understanding of that already. And so I don't, I'm not sure that's changed very much, but in general, it's understanding those interactions are crucial and exploring new interactions is interesting and cool for, for new game design. So, okay, let me interject with a question real quick then. Is anyone's understanding of these topics more informed now? Because nope. I think a lot of designers... Hold on. A lot of designers are aware of these things instinctually without being really aware of how they're pulling these levers. So Yeah, are... I think you're right. Um, and to some degree, yes. Um, which I think is good for future discussion. For sure. And maybe future game design. I, I'm speaking for myself. Uh, I guess there's no way to indicate this wasn't an epiphany for me i guess we'll put it that way but i think the continual discussion of things like this and in, in a general sense puts you from rookie designer to you know sort of a master designer <laughs> which we uh, which we strive for um and i don't mean this one discussion but discussions in general like this just over time are, are what really mm -hmm. help build uh, along with actually creating those two things together um, really make us better designers. Yeah, I feel like a lot of my thoughts get worked out like on this on this podcast, and it definitely helps me consider my own positions and and the way I execute those positions. Yeah, the discussions definitely do. In this particular case, for like reading through these papers, I... normally I end up being able to you know, come up with new thoughts and ways to express them and 
questions I have. And generally, I always love looking at like edge cases and stuff. In this case, I just, I don't feel like I actually ended up walking away any further ahead than I was, than I had been to start. Like, yeah, I thought about some stuff more, but I didn't really come up with anything new from it. Like, wasn't a new perspective. It wasn't really much at anything beyond where it had been. So, I don't know, I was, I was a little disappointed in that, but it wasn't terrible. It's just, I get the feeling that these, since these were all academics and most of them very clearly had not had like a lot of understanding about the topic they were talking about, like specifically like the video games they were trying to discuss. I think that was a large part of the, the issue why it was so hard to get much out of them because even like people that have not a ton of experience, but who have like experience working in like a role playing game, you're basically working with these concepts on a regular basis. So what they're describing is something that is like, they're basically trying to describe our everyday life. So it's not really that surprising that we have a more uh, in-depth understanding of what we do on a regular basis than what they're just tentatively poking at. Mm -hmm. I think what I took from this was um, a little bit more of the theory behind it. So I'd say that I don't think my views on what needs to exist in an RPG or to make it a, a successful one have changed. But I think there are merits to looking at these games from different perspectives. I think that the fields of narratology and ludology aren't, I don't know, um, or I guess there's, there's yet to be a, a vocabulary designed to look at role-playing games from these two perspectives. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because the field is very young, because this genre of games is new. Um, and what has helped me the most in reading these is actually some of the models that they use for describing games. Um, I was specifically thinking of one, um, a narrative theory of games, which was the Arseth paper from 2012, mm -hmm. where he goes into detail about um, different models of how to lay out the game and what components exist in a game. So world, objects, agents, and events, and how these interconnect or relate to each other and what that means in terms of the translation from the narrative elements to the, the play elements. And I think that that's a helpful framework to look at games from. But in terms of changing my view of, uh, I came in thinking that 
story and narrative is essential to role playing games, and I did not change that perspective from reading these papers. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, a lot of the discussion actually helped hammer out some of the things. Like I, in my notes, I'd written out that um, the role playing games encompass a larger area than narrative. But I think stuff that Rob had mentioned as well, saying that they are actually sort of the the superposition of the two. I think that helped to kind of clarify what mm. I meant by it. Um, yeah. And that they really, you need to have the synergy of the two. You can't just have the elements of the two, but they need to work together and in tandem. Yeah. Um, and I think it's that's a, a really interesting creative space. It's a dialogue. Sorry, go ahead. It, I was just going to say it's a dialogue between the two. So they're in constant dialogue with each other. Like exactly. one's informing the other and the other's, in, you know, and vice versa. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a synergy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things just that like, Yeah, go ahead. Uh just like I previously described in earlier episodes where system and setting are synergistic but separate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Uh I was just gonna say that one of the things that Jonathan uh said that I wrote down was that in an RPG to create narrative you have to play. Um, and I think that's a perfect example of that, that they go so hand in hand that the the forward engine for this game is playing with the mechanics to generate narrative to then inform your next choice of mechanics. Um, yeah. And I think I just that's... Like to say, sorry, I think it was Kat who originally said that. I just iterated oh. on it. Okay, yeah. cool. I don't remember. Uh, you, you do. I'll totally take credit for it if you want that. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, and then I think the last thing I had in notes was some of the stuff that I'd written about um, how I wrote that um, there's a big problem of like the beginner uh, dungeon masters who write a linear story and then expect players to go through it in their role playing game. And I think we touched on this a lot, but that doesn't work in this medium. Like we can't expect a linear story to translate to a game experience because it's a non-linear game experience. And Kavor's like story creation engine is perfect for describing it because not you can't come in with a preconceived uh, storyline and expect that after having other people add their creativity and their interaction to it, that you're going to end up with that same story. It's going to change. And that's the, that's the artistic beauty of the medium that we're working in. Yeah. I just um, wanted to say, cause I, I thought it was a really good thing that you said. I phrased it as story, as storytelling engine. You're the one who said story creation engine and story creation engine is so much of a better term. And I wish I had it before. <laughs> I just wanted to give credit where credit was due there. Well, then I was the one who said yeah. that. I'll take the credit where it isn't due if you want to give it to me. So. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, we, we said this before, but this is just like what we've sort of said in the end of this podcast is we, we really develop ideas with each other. Yeah. Yep. No, that's true. Um, I did want to point one thing out, though, while mm-hmm. I think of it, is the narratology concept, like the idea of even trying to think of a game in the structure of literary analysis. 
it's not a terrible idea. Uh, I was kind of already partially doing this to begin with, but it's kind of partially for a reason. Like, yeah, there are elements like the three acts story and the hero's journey and things like that that are classical literary elements for um, breaking down how uh, a story works. And these can work in games as well. But as we'd stated as well, it's not all that perfect. Like, it, it doesn't, there's a lot of things that just don't carry over when you have interactivity instead of a linear path. Like, having that multicursal instead of the unicursal setup is, uh, it, it doesn't transfer over all that well. So, I actually ended up learning a lot more from writing for video games prior to this than I did from the narratology setup of just trying to think of everything as a story. Like, it's not as good of a... It's not a terrible way to try to look at things, but I think it's lacking to only look at it from that side. You have to include the gameplay aspects. You have to include the interactivity aspects. If you don't do that, then it just doesn't work nearly as well. I I think a lot of this can be summed up with the quote, and I don't remember who said it, but no plan survives contact with the enemy. Um, I think there was a general, it was a general that said that, and I don't mean for that to invoke it with any kind of, you know, belligerent con connotations, but, you know, like, whatever the GM or whoever else presets as, or preconceives as a narrative idea is not going to um, is not going to emerge from the gameplay unaltered. Yeah. So, you, so, you can't count yeah. on that. But so, you right. It's Helmuth von Malt. Mark, we what do are you really doing, dude? <laughs> you just crushing cans? With his forehead. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. No, it's, it's the old adage of no plot ever survives an encounter with the players. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I think. Yeah, that's. Yeah, that's the direct, you know, yeah. adaptation of the quote. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's probably Sun Tzu or some shit like that. No, I, I double checked. It was Helmuth von uh, Hilt or something like I can't pronounce the last name. Yeah. Anyway, what are you going to say, Jonathan? Um. I was just sort of saying, like, you're right, that e even though we can't expect a linear uh, narrative in the end, we do sort of demand our GM to prepare that for us, right? Like, in, in, in a lot of ways, like, we expect something from them. And it, it's, it's not a... We're not really fair to them <laughs> as players. <laughs> well, okay. It can be fair, like the GM meta role and its interaction with the the game and the gameplay is very different from the player meta role. Yeah. So no, it's I... unfair to consider the GM as only a player 
and like the motivations to GM are different than, and probably a superset. Like everything about the GM is a superset of that of the player, from interactions to motivations to authority, yada yada yada, on down the line. So it's unfair to equate them to that degree. Yeah, I, I was just sort of being. I don't know, like it's it's not an easy position. I think we all know that, though, but. Um... Right, which is which is why there's been the 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 trends recently of either a so-called light games or B so-called GMless games, which are actually distributed GMing. And the whole overall like. like weight stripping of games in general. Like nobody would dare publish anything like Rollmaster today. I mean, Rollmaster is still being published, but sure. <laughs> there are people, nobody would launch circles who nobody would. would nobody would launch anything like Rollmaster today because the market sensibilities are very different. Oh, uh, keep in mind there there are some odd things that are kind of different to that as well like you oh, said like we, we're all kind of getting to the idea of like oh well GMing is a difficult task there's a lot of people that don't realize that as well right now like there's actually a growing trend towards people wanting to get into GMless games not because they want to make it easier for players but because they consider the GM to be too powerful without realizing the responsibility and the effort that goes into that. And it's a little bit strange that they can basically try to build a GM-less game without understanding the role of a GM to begin with. Oh, I, I think, I mean, I think people who make good GM-less games understand the role of the GM. Oh yeah, good ones do. But there are definitely <laughs> those that do not currently. Yeah, generally the people who produce a GMless game from the perspective of the GM is too powerful don't understand the meta role. They just they just want to they just want to be relatively more powerful players compared to the GM. Uh which is probably a result of some trauma that they've suffered. <laughs> That might be true. That's, I mean, I'm sure that is true sometimes, but nah, I don't know. By and large, the the, the games with distributed GMs I've seen generally don't follow that tack, or when they do, it's really obvious that they're not. They don't get very far, basically, under that premise. And right. So because go going GMless is only one way to make the gameplay more more collaborative, which is ultimately. Yeah what's going on yeah that's what they're trying to do regardless yeah. of any yeah regardless of any like meta role dynamics the the premise of a tabletop role playing is that it's collaborative yeah absolutely like every everybody gets to put their hand on a on a on a lever or dial or some other interface component of the story creation engine. Oh, purely adversarial. Fight everybody. 
even if you're adversarial, which I don't condone. I know that's still technically collaborative. <laughs> yep. I know. I'm trying to be absurd. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's the aesthetic of a lot of gameplay that is all too common still. Mm. Somewhat. I think it's I, it feels like it's less now. It feels like that that mode is sort of understood to be counterproductive, productive, productive. Uh, it does have some benefits in sometimes, but not universally applicable. Like it, it's the kind mm. of thing that sometimes adversarial is not necessarily a bad thing. No, it, uh, there's there's degrees though. There's degrees. Yeah. Like there's you know you don't want it. There's there's kinds of adversarial and there's that add to gameplay, but I think it's it's more like um, you know the, the 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 dash of something you add to cooking rather than you know you don't you really don't want too much. You want just yeah, enough, it, and it then if it goes over that, there's a there, it's a it, it feels like it's a fairly low bar. Like you don't you really don't want too much because then it becomes very tedious. I think. Yeah, I, I find it's generally something that it's good in small quantities sometimes mm -hmm. it's not something that you apply all the time in all situations no, it's, it's, it's a spice yeah there's <laughs> also a difference between uh hurting the characters and being adversarial because yeah yeah you can hurt in conflict being adversarial. well and there's even dimension among or within adversarial because you could have characters debating which most of the time happens incidentally but then, like, there are entire games that are designed around martial combat. Mm -hmm. Which is combat. a very specific, yeah, which is, you know, a very specific time, kind of conflict that, yeah, that's, that's a lot that's too emphasized in our hobby i think still is you know the 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 hack and slash versus any other kind of conflict it, i think it, it depends it, yeah it is i think it's starting to fall away from what from what it used to be uh but i would say yes i would say well over 70% of games that come out are are geared towards tactical combat of some kind. Yeah. I mean, even mine is. Yeah, I like tactical combat, though. <laughs> I know, me so, too. Yeah. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that there's a lot of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there might be such a thing as too much of a good thing. I mean, I'm definitely yeah. I mean, but well, I mean, three of our games here, like Jonathan's game has none. Uh, Mark's game has, it's not really tactical combat. Uh, Fred's game certainly doesn't. Um, no, I, I think though, like tactical combat, that's like a large portion of games, but then the, um, super broad, uh, um, physical conflict is, is way bigger or like it, it sort of takes up this space of like 95%, um, which, which my game, not, it doesn't have to explicitly be physical no, conflict, no. but it, but it does end in a, like a. A, something called a clash so i mean it it can be definitely lean towards that oh yeah yeah but it's not because your the your structure is abstract enough that 
that doesn't necessarily entail violence. You're, I wouldn't lump your game in with even even power, even Apocalypse World, which definitely has fighting as part of it, one of the things you definitely do. Right, you know? but not in a tactical sense. Not in a ta- but not in a tactical sense, yeah. And Fred's game also is like devoid of that sort of allusion to violence, pretty much. Yeah, even um, though you might get in a fist fight. It, right. It, it's, it's not precluded from the game. Yeah, that's fair enough. But I think we're we've digressed quite yeah. a bit, and I think we we yeah, did yeah. We, come to we our natural recording. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so are we wrapping this one up then? Yes, I think yep. so. Yeah, I think that's everything. Unless we want to go on a on a tangent about simulation, let's call it good here. <laughs> okay, thanks for well, opening in that up. Case, in that case, I will. Uh, Thank our listener for enduring this dumpster fire and uh, hope he returns for the next one. Uh, real quick, Rob, uh, hit everybody with the social media stuff. Oh, yeah. We're on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter at Flail Forward. That's us. All right. Good night. <laughs> we also have a Discord that you can technically join. <laughs> yeah, you'll find the link in all of those yeah, places. And- Mm-hmm. All right. And SoundCloud. Thank you, listener. Right. And SoundCloud. Which and is iTunes. Where all these episodes are at. Yeah. Oh, neat. We have uh, we have things on iTunes. I might have things to on it. iTunes. We have a review on iTunes. We have a five star review on iTunes. Yeah, I, re- I remember that. Yeah, that, yeah. Bizarre. that. That was very nice. That's our one. That's our listener. Anyway, that's the, that's, that's, that's the, uh, that's right. the person. Say, yeah. Say goodbye. Right. Say Bye. goodbye, everybody. Bye. 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 Good night. <laughs>